Hello, and welcome back after the Easter break for what is our third series. And already it looks as though the next few days will be turbulent ones for the BBC. The as yet unpublished report by Adam Heppinstall KC on the circumstances surrounding Richard Sharp's appointment as BBC chair is reported to be damning. Mr Sharp's exit from the corporation seems inevitable. And then what? Surely it's time for an appointment which is acceptable to Parliament as a whole and that the choice of BBC chair should no longer be made by a Prime Minister of whatever party. But there is, of course, another public service broadcaster whose future has been in the spotlight, Channel 4, which has been spared privatisation, at least for the moment. Like all broadcasters, it will be directly affected by the draft media bill, which was long anticipated and finally published at the end of March. And this week we're going to focus on what it says about diversity and the public service broadcasters. I'm delighted to be joined by the award-winning journalist and film producer Marcus Ryder, who worked on Panorama and was for eight years head of BBC Scotland's current affairs programmes. He's now head of the external consultancies at the Sir Lenny Henry Centre for Media Diversity, which was set up to explore and increase diversity across the industry. He's also chair of RADA the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. Marcus Ryder, thanks very much for joining us. Do we still have a diversity problem? I know that's a heretical thought, but some statistics suggest that we don't now have one. Yes, we definitely still have a diversity problem, and sometimes it's about our use of language as to whether we have a representational problem, whether we have a diversity problem, whether it's diversity of thought, whether it's regional diversity... I don't think there are many people in Scotland, for example, I worked for eight years, would say that British broadcasting represents, mainstream broadcasting represents uh, Scottish opinion in the way that they would be happy with. And I think that goes for lots of minoritized or marginalized groups. So the short answer is yes, we still have an issue. I wonder how much of a problem that we do have in terms anyway of non-white uh, minority ethnic being involved in broadcasting because when we look at an Ofcom report 21-22 it suggests that actually certainly at the level of entry we no longer have a problem. The problems come later on and the co- problems come in terms of the powers, the people who actually exercise power. But in terms of actually participating, things have improved significantly, haven't they? Um, again, it's a bit more complicated. So I don't think there's a major pipeline issue. I think you are correct that the stats seem to point to the idea that diversity racial diversity at least gets worse as you go up higher in in broadcasting. But those stats as well, even the entry level, they need to be taken with a pinch of salt. Because I think the stats that you're citing, the Ofcom site, are the diamond statistics. And the diamond stats are um, self-reporting. And so it means that I think... Off the top of my head, I think it's less than a third, possibly 25% of productions give those figures. It was a survey on the eight of the largest UK broadcasters, and Ofcom suggests that in that target group of, for example, those who are at entry point and coming into the industry, actually rather more people are coming from a diverse background than from, if you like, a white ethnic background. 
So I'm not entirely sure which survey you're quoting. Ofcom itself doesn't do surveys. What it does is that it asks the broadcasters to self-report. And if you look at the broadcasters self-reporting, then what you're talking about is more programs are being made by freelancers. If you look at the BBC, with regards to Channel 4, it's exclusively made by independent companies. So the only stats which are really available to look at that are the diamond stats, where the production companies report their own stats, and less than a third of productions actually self-report, which leads to the conclusion that only the ones which have reasonably good diversity bother to self-report, and so therefore those stats are massively skewed. So for example, the diamond stats which Ofcom use, they cite that the level of directors from ethnic minorities comes in at something like over 10%. If you look at Directors UK report of ethnic minorities, that number is bumping around 2 to 3%. There's an order of magnitude of indifference of about 500%, something like that off the top of my head. Now, the fact of the matter is that the Directors UK report figures do not have a skewed data set because that's looking at all directors that it collects royalties for. Whereas the diamond statistics do have a skewed data set problem. This is indicated by the fact that the trade unions actually advise their members not to fill it in, which makes it even more problematic. And so the, the stats which are in the Ofcom report are highly contentious and are really difficult and problematic. They would say, uh, Ofcom would say, and it is the 2021-2022 diversity report, equality, diversity and inclusion on television and radio, report on eight of the largest UK broadcasters, which includes BBC Channel 5 and so on, and Channel 4 and so on. They would say, uh, this is the broadcasters telling us the people that they employ. And the people they employ, they, they seem to suggest, are now uh, rather more employed from a non-white background than would be the case if it represented the UK population or working population as a whole. The figures change later when you're talking about more senior positions. So are we confusing here? People who work for the broadcasters, and you're talking about people who work for independents and freelance directors and so on. So you're absolutely right. There's lots of confusion as to which numbers we are talking about. And so what we need to, to look at, when Channel 4 say the people are employees, it's not talking about a single person who's actually making a program because Channel 4 doesn't make programs. It's a publishing house. Right? And so, so are we interested in the people that Channel 4 employs or are we interested in the people that actually make the programs? Now, the fact of the matter is we're interested in both. Yeah, we're interested in both. But what you're saying is that if we look at just the statistics the broadcasters supply, actually that doesn't tell us anything like what is really happening in the industry. And what you're suggesting is in the freelance world, there's a massive uh, distance to go in order to get a decent range of diverse people from diverse backgrounds. And presumably you'd also include in that from working class backgrounds. All different types of, of backgrounds, whether you're talking about LGBTQ possibly. The biggest bane of my life <laughs> working in, in diversity is not having the statistics that I really want. Every statistics that you use, whether you're talking about the diamond data, whether you're talking about even the BBC internal data, and BBC internal data of who BBC employs is possibly the best data there is. You know, 
but even that, you know, I, I can bore you silly, but even that is problematic and you're not really going to get better data than that. But yeah, it's it's a constant pain. But anecdotally, right, you get people like Simon Aubrey, who's the former CEO of RTS. And he every now and again goes on social media and he does hashtag diversity fail. And he posts these pictures of people who've done a crew shot, production crew shot, and they're invariably 100% white, right? Now, you could say that he's just picking those pictures. The reality is I've never seen a crew shot for a non-quote-unquote black program or Asian program, right, which has got decent diversity, racial diversity, visibly racial diversity. I haven't seen a, a crew shot, irrespective of whether Simon Aubrey is posting it or, or not, which has got decent disability diversity if it's not a disability specific program that's just anecdotally this is an extraordinary situation where we after all the reports that have come out on this issue and it's as supposed to be at the center of broadcasters aims ambitions intentions and so on you're saying that we haven't got any statistics we can properly trust no comprehensive analysis of the situation the employment situation in the television broadcast and radio uh, industries in this country Unfortunately, yeah. Well, <laughs> that's, that surprises me and shocks me, to be honest. Can I also ask about the categories we're talking about here? Uh, there are some people who've been suggesting that a term like BAME may have outlived its importance because some would say that it's trying to cover too wide a range of people and also a lot of those people, well, I mean, a lot of people would say, for example, if you look on screen, there seems to be a very large number of British Asians, perhaps a disproportionate number on screen of British Asians. And does it, so does it make any sense now to use the term BAME? So the BBC and the Public Service Broadcasters came together and commissioned the Selene Henry Centre um, for Media Diversity to write a report and recommendations on the use of racial language and on specifically that term BAME or BAME. And what we recommended was that there are times when a collective noun, whether that's black, Asian, minority, ethnic, whether that's people of colour, has some utility, but it is as useful as saying out of London, in that if, I, if I'm in Wales and somebody tells me that out of London productions have increased by 50%, I'll be like, well, that's good to know. But what does that mean to me as a Welsh person? You know, how does it mean more productions are in Wales? And so I think it has some utility to say black, Asian, minority, ethnic, or use a inclusive term. But at the same time, it should be accompanied with what it actually means to people. So it means to specific groups. So you can say that, let's say, black, Asian, and minority, ethnic people are 5% less likely to be employed by X. But when it comes to black people, they are 10 times less likely. Or when it comes to black people, that's not a problem that they have, but it is a problem which is disproportionately affecting Asian people, whatever. So I'm not against using collective nouns, but I think there's utility in making sure that we drill down into those stats when we do use collective nouns. But would it be sensible to, to, to put more attention on a class-based analysis? I mean, the old cliche about the BBC was, of course, all the leading bosses went to public school or and then Oxford and Cambridge. 
brackets, I didn't go to either, never mind. I mean, but it was broadly true at the hierarchy. I'm not sure how it's true now. But I just, but it's unfashionable now to talk about all of this in class terms. But should we start again to look more intensively, Channel 4 is starting to do this, the BBC is doing it a little, at, at a class-based analysis of those who go into the industry and, more importantly, those who are able to stay in the industry. So, first of all, yeah, we should definitely be doing class-based analysis of diversity. There's no question about that. But my worry is that sometimes it's presented as oppositional to or duality with regards to race. And I think that's dangerous. People have various different identities. You can be a woman and be a black person and be working class all at the same time. And so it's looking at how those different identities may overlap. So we absolutely should make sure that we look at all those different types of identities, whether that's class, whether that's regional, whether that's ethnicity. Absolutely. But my worry is when they're presented as being in conflict with one another, that we should do class-based analysis instead of disability, or we should do racial analysis instead of gender. You know, we should be more intelligent and be able to do all of those things at the same time. Well, I'd like to talk to you now about uh, Channel 4, one of our major public service broadcasters, which you've written about. Channel 4 being set up, you said, to directly address market failures in terms of diversity of programming, diversity of talent and diversity of suppliers. And I don't think you think it's doing that today, do you? It definitely isn't doing that to the same degree as it was doing when it was first set up. That, that is its raison d'etre. And in order to fulfill that, that remit, a lot of requirements were put on it by its regulator and through its license. And uh, over the years, those regulations and those requirements have been loosened to say the least. So you wrote that by 2016, nearly all fixed quotas in education, multicultural, religion and training just vanished. And that was due to, you said, the Communication Act of 2003, which, of course, was pushed by the Labour Party, uh, was a Labour government measure. But now we can see, uh, well, throughout the present Conservative administration, now in the latest draft media bill, further cutting back in restrictions or quotas. So do you think Channel 4 now is recognisably the same organisation committed to diversity that it was when it started in the early 1980s? No, you would not get a bandong file um, that you had at the start of, of Channel 4 as today. It is not the, the same place that was commissioning stuff from... Uh, you, know, you, you only have to talk to Akhil Ahmed, who was at Channel 4, Previously, he was head of religion at, at Channel 4 and also oversaw their multicultural programming. Everybody who worked at Channel 4 has said that it has changed considerably, especially in its multicultural programming. People work to the, the license that they find themselves in. People work to the requirements which they have to deliver to. And so it's no surprise. It's not an indictment of, of Channel 4. It's the fact that if those license requirements are relaxed, people are going to... Um, take advantage of those more relaxed regulatory environments. Well, I wonder if this is, I wonder if Channel Four can get off scot free because what these uh, requirements did and uh, did in religion, for example, was to say to the independent sector, "We have to do a certain amount of programming in this area. What have you got?" And we, and actually, they've got quite a lot. 
because you know they come from very different backgrounds. They understand uh, about uh, about religion in a way often that people at the centre don't. Uh, they have lots of ways of exploring interesting programming and a relationship between religion and science and so on. But independent producers can only make what's commissioned, and if the commissioners aren't looking for that, they won't get it. And this is the problem, you know, that it, it, with arts and elsewhere. I mean, the independent sector is capable of doing an amazing amount, but it's not independent. It's totally dependent on getting commissions. And if you don't have those quotas in areas which the market does not provide, you won't get the programmes, will you? Absolutely. So a large part of the way that I view television regulation is informed by my time in Scotland. You know, so I moved to Scotland, BBC Scotland, and I moved to Glasgow in 2007, just as the BBC was, not coincidentally, obviously, but just as the BBC was increasing its regional output and the productions made out of the UK, out of London, rather, in the rest of the UK. And uh, what you found was that more programmes and good programmes, award-winning programmes, were being made outside of, of London. And... Uh, if those quotas hadn't been enforced both by Ofcom and by the BBC, I'm under no illusion that the BBC would not have made those programmes outside of, of London left to their own devices. And so broadcasters need strong regulation. And once strong regulation is imposed, executives and commissioners can be incredibly creative in finding the talent outside of London, in finding the programmes and the talent which is outside of London can also be can also rise to the challenge. And so I would, my experience is that if they were to introduce or reintroduce these quotas at Channel 4, you'll find multicultural programmes, you will find the education programmes, you'll find the religious programmes. They're there. And they'd find an identity which you think in a way they've lost. Absolutely. And, and it's an identity which would be complementary to the broadcasting industry that would then feed into programs which could be produced by the BBC and ITV and, and Channel 5. It's, it's a large ecosystem. So Channel 4 does not stand by itself. It nurtures talent, it creates programs, and it then feeds into the BBC. Similarly, the Channel 4 is now pushing productions and its licenses, making sure that it produces more programs out of London, for example, for regional diversity, that's only because the Conservative government said it should do so. What's depressing to me about this is that people are highly critical of government. Perhaps they should be. Actually, if the government doesn't push, often the broadcasters won't do it. And you look at the board, the top board of Channel 4, 13 members, nine men, four women, all white. I am staggered. I can't believe. How on earth has that happened, that the channel which in many ways set up to be at the forefront of pushing diversity ends up in this situation? And it shouldn't be a case of it just being quote-unquote representative of the population at large. Channel 4, it's, as I said, it's raison d'etre, that its very being is meant to represent minoritised and marginalised groups and the market failure that other broadcasters are not representing. And so they should be, to use the technical term, they should be over-indexing in its representation on the board. 
But who at the top, you know, when they sit and decide the budgets, well, ultimately the chief executive is and everything else at the top, when they're, say, looking and overlooking the, the output, who is there who actually can speak from their experience and can say, in various diverse communities and whatever, there are all these stories, there's all this talent, where is it on our screen? Well, there isn't, actually. And I don't say, of course, they haven't got brilliant people on that board, but I just do not understand how a channel can have got itself in this position. So you have... loosening regulation um, you have a board that is not representative in many ways and you begin to question is it and will it continue to be a public service broadcaster and then you look at the BBC which clearly is a public service broadcaster but it also has lobbied to have greater freedom as it puts it with some of these it might call minority areas of programming and seems in many people's views to be preparing for a, a future without the license fee where it's a big international and successful business. But whether it's a public service business anymore might be in question. Yeah, so I, I think I, I find very little to just disagree with, with your analysis there. So, yeah, I agree with you violently. So what can be done? So assuming that we are right, which is always a nice thing to think, in a sense you've got this, well, not you've got this media bill coming now before Parliament, which is going to loosen even more, as it were, the public service requirements, I think, of our main broadcasters. Do you think there's a chance that this bill can be amended in ways that would actually ensure a greater diversity in future? So the irony is that I think that it is in the BBC, Channel 4s and other public service broadcasters' interests for them to tighten regulation. Because if they don't tighten regulation, then the public service broadcasters quickly become like any other channel, whether they become like Sky or whether they become like a a streamer. And so it's actually in their interest to differentiate themselves from the other broadcasters or, or streamers and actually have a, a reason for being. And so if I were working at the BBC, or if I was at Channel 4, I would be lobbying the government for tighter regulation. Because if you have tighter regulation, then you have a reason for Channel 4 to exist. If you have tighter regulation, you have an actual reason to keep BBC's licence. You know, so the irony is that looser regulation, although it might be in nicer as an individual executive, to be able to commission whatever programs you want, when you want, etc., for the long-term benefit of your company, you actually want tighter regulation. And do you think there's a consensus that can be built upon? In other words, do you have any troops, Marcus? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's funny. When Channel 4 um, was under threat and thought it was about to be privatised, all of a sudden it kind of by itself reinvented or um, uh, Channel 4 went back to its roots when it thought it was under under threat. So you had some very courageous programs such as the Black to Front Day, which was um, having 100% black representation in front of the camera and trying to maximise black representation behind the camera. And it went back to a Channel 4, which I recognised, and it was trying to argue, this is the Channel 4 you know, this is the Channel 4 you love. This is why we exist. And so my fear is that now that privatization seems to be off the table, the Channel 4 will then forget, once again, forget why it actually exists and forget and work to these looser regulations. And so 
what you want is that and people rallied around Channel 4. And every time I heard people rallying around Channel 4 when there was a threat of privatisation, what they harked back to was the pre-2003 Channel 4, the Channel 4 of old that we all knew and loved. Very rarely did they cite the programmes in the last 15 years of Channel 4. They did not cite the Great British Bake Off, which originated at the BBC. It did not cite the programmes which it's doing now. They kept going back to programmes and what Channel 4 was doing when it was under tighter regulation. On the other hand, you could say this is an opportunity for the BBC because if if you're running the BBC and you say yeah, Channel 4, for whatever reason, is actually not dealing, is not as diverse a channel as it should be or was, in making the case for a public service BBC, which may still have a degree of licence fee funding, you would have thought, wow, here's an opportunity for us, actually. But you don't want either or. I mean, one of the things which, when, as I said, when I was in, in Scotland, when STV was doing a great job, that spurred BBC Scotland on to do a better job. When STV moved out of a certain genre or area, you know, whether we did it consciously or whether it was subconscious, you found that the urgency was not there. You know, it's, it's a, competition is good. So public service, public service broadcasting needs competition, but not too much. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, what, what, you, what you need is a well-regulated market. And a well-regulated market is able to create competition between different organisations. The fact of the matter, right, to, to get really boring, is that broadcasting, by its very nature, is an oligopsony. Right? And an oligopsony, meaning that it can only have a few buyers, right? which is a few broadcasters that can buy products. It, broadcasting, by its nature, does not allow for it to be a perfect market. It will always be an oligopsony. Oligopsonies are prone to market failures. Therefore, for market failures, what you need is really good regulation to encourage competition within an oligopsony. Sorry, that's, that's the public service economics 101 lecture over. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, unfortunately, Marcus, uh, our interview is over. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week. We're still mulling over our rebranding. Roger Bolton's Media Watch has been the latest suggestion. Part of this rebranding strategy is, of course, to attract sponsorship. So do let us know if you have any ideas who might want to back us. However, if you want to fend off advertising, please financially support us. At less than £2 per month, we hope we're worth it. You can do it easily using the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. And finally, uh, my producer Kate and I were interviewed by PodPod before Easter about how our podcast came into being. Again, you'll be able to find the link to that podcast and our contact details on our website and in the description of this programme. And if you didn't know already... This podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios, and special thanks to Quinn Genty. It was a Good Egg production. Goodbye. <laughs>